Hello and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is a true crime podcast that discusses long investigated mysteries that are solved using forensic genealogy. As a disclaimer, I am in no way affiliated with or sponsored by GenMatch, Parabon Nanolabs, or the DNA Doe Project. On Labor Day night, 1990, two elderly women are viciously attacked after they settle in to watch a baseball game on TV. One of them will die at the scene and the other will succumb to her injuries two months later. This is the case of Betty Jones and Katherine Krigler, the Labor Day murders of Starkville, Mississippi. Hello, happy Wednesday. Welcome back. Now, when I first started researching this case, I came across a podcast called The Knock Knock Podcast. It was created and released back in 2017 and early 18 with a few bonus episodes afterwards when the family mapping investigation was completed and there was an arrest. Um, it was created and produced and released by the grandsons of one of our victims today. So definitely check out The Knock Knock Podcast. I was able to get some information about um, the ladies here that were unfortunate victims of our uh, our piece of shit asshole. But um, I just wanted to give credit to Jason B. Jones and his brother, Simon Jones, for that. And definitely go check them out. They are the Knock Knock Podcast, and they do have a website with um, accompanying photographs. All right. Just a quick note, I am going to take next week off. I am admittedly starting to get a little burnt out, but it's just going to be a week break, and I'm going to be doing you know all my research and case finding in the meantime, I'm just going to give myself a week's break from releasing an episode, and then I will see you back on Wednesday, April 28th. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this um, this case out of Mississippi, and I will see you in a few weeks. This week we are in Starkville, Mississippi, and Starkville is a little more north than it is south and a little more east than it is, well, a lot more east actually, than it is west. It's just a little closer of a drive to Jackson, Mississippi than it is to Birmingham, Alabama. The population is about 19,000 and it is the home of Mississippi State University and the Mississippi Bulldogs baseball team. Here, violent crimes are rare. And now we will meet our Betty Jones and Catherine Krigler. We'll start with Betty. Betty was born October 12th, 1924. Betty would be married twice. The first marriage was to Tinsley Thrower and later to Ernest Jones. During her first marriage, she had a daughter named Patricia with Tinsley, but unfortunately, Patricia tragically died before she was two years old. Later, they would adopt a daughter and a son. And then in October of 1975, Tinsley uh, past. A few years later, she would move back to Starkville, where she was from, and she was out attending to her garden one day, and a man named Ernest Jones walked by on his regular daily walk, and they got to chatting. They fell in love and got married, but sadly, Ernest died within three years of their marriage, and he passed in September of 1981. Betty would have a lot of family that lived in Texas, particularly her son and his wife and kids, and they would often ask her to move out to, to Texas to live closer to them. But she was actually very happy where she was over there in Mississippi. 
She was an avid follower of the Mississippi State's baseball team, the Bulldogs, and she would often visit them during their practices and bring them baked goods and chewing gum and stuff and encouraging them. The team coach, Ron Polk, remembers her as a friend of the team. He even tells us that Betty would volunteer to pick up his own mother at the airport when she would come to visit him, and then she would sit with his mom when the team, when the team would play. And she would also, Betty would also travel with them to games out of town. And the college, which actually nicknamed Betty the Team Mom. And throughout all these years, Betty lived a life of service. She was a member of various church organizations and civic groups. And she was um, also put on the board of many of these organizations as well. Now, who is Catherine Crumpton Krigler? Catherine Crumpton was born on January 7th, 1909. She graduated from Mississippi State College for Women, worked as an elementary school teacher, and then later in life, she went back to the university and worked there. Catherine was a talented singer and a piano player, and she was often asked to sing at church services and also for weddings for people in her congregation. Catherine's husband was Albert Krigler Jr., who was one year older than her, and he had passed in 1981. They would have two kids, Albert III and Anita. Catherine would end up having four grandkids, three grandsons, and one granddaughter. And Catherine's family actually did live in Mississippi, and they vis- they were able to visit her often. A few of the grandkids even ended up going to Mississippi State University, so they were able to see their grandmother very often. Her granddaughter tells us that she was a very independent and strong-willed woman, and she was still driving herself around when she needed to, all the way up until she lost her leg due to circulation problems sometime in late 1989 or early 1990. Now, Betty and Catherine met at their local church, and they struck up a really close friendship. And when Catherine did go undergo that amputation surgery that she did need to have on her leg, Betty was there to help. So now we're on to the night of Labor Day, September 3rd, 1990. Betty is 65, and Catherine is about 81 years old. Catherine was having trouble getting around and taking care of herself because of her um, recent amputation, and because she, she was getting around in a wheelchair. And her doctor had also changed some of her medication. So she did ask around and she ended up getting help from Betty, who said that she would, you know, spend some time with her and and stay over her house to help her out. So the ladies had finished dinner and they had gotten into their nightgowns. This was like around like eight eight or nine o'clock at night. And they're settling in to watch a baseball game on television. And then someone comes knocking on the back door and Betty gets up to go see what's going on. Well, as soon as she opens the door, an unknown man forces himself into the house. Now he gets into a scuffle with Betty and begins stabbing her right away, and he's essentially slashing her throat. But while this is happening, she is calling out to Catherine, who is now towards the back of the house in the bathroom. Once this unknown man is done with Betty, he stalks through the house to find Catherine, and his hands are all bloody from cutting Betty. But when he finds Catherine, he forces her into her bedroom And he tells her that if she's good, he won't hurt her like what he had to do to her friend. And then he sexually assaults her, saying horrific things to her in the process and beating her. When he's finished, he cleans himself up in the bathroom, cleaning off his hands, no doubt, and steals her purse before he makes his getaway. Now you can imagine Catherine is 81 years old. She's a recent amputee. She's only getting around by a wheelchair. She is very, very hurt by the way this man just just raped her and attacked her and and beat her, but she is able to crawl her way out of the bedroom and down the hall into the kitchen. She's able to pull the phone from the, from the wall and she waits for an operator to beep in so she can get connected to the police. She says to the police, I need help. 
tonight there was a single boy, a young man, and he went into the front room where my friend was, and he came back with his hands all bloody. Now, when police get there, they discovered that this attacker had locked the door behind him, so they actually had to break open one of the windows or one of the doors to get in to get to her. And some of Catherine's friends had made it to the house before the ambulance took Catherine away. And one of the things she's able to say to her son before they take her away is, quote, I don't think I can make it if Betty doesn't make it, unquote. And it is later that night that she will be told that Betty had been killed. Now, once at the hospital, the doctors discover that whoever did this to her had actually broken her hip. They also take DNA samples from her and they create a rape kit. Now, at the time, rape kits were not normal protocol for hospitals in caring for victims of sexual assault. But in this case, in this hospital, they decided to take one. And this would be very important evidence that the police would use 28 years later to find the animal that came into the house that night. Now, in the early episodes of the Knock Knock podcast that I mentioned earlier, Jason and his family members do recount finding out what had happened to their grandmother Going, taking the drive all the way from where they lived in Texas over to Mississippi and the few days that they spent in Mississippi to take care of the funeral. It really was just heartbreaking. It reminds me of when my brother had passed right after 9-11. I had to get on a plane and I went to be with my family. And it's just a blur. You don't really remember a lot. You think back later, oh, I, f- I wish I remembered this. I wish I remembered that. Too bad we didn't save this memento. Too bad we didn't talk to that person. It's all just a blur. And the Knock Knock podcast will take you through that experience that Betty's family had. So many people in Starksville turned out for Betty's funeral that it was standing room only. And even people who wanted to pay their respects would just wait outside and just listen for the service that was happening inside during the funeral services. And some of the Mississippi State Bulldogs players actually served as pallbearers for Betty's casket. So it just goes to show you how how much of an impact she made, not only on the community, the town itself, but also onto the in, in the college community. Now, Catherine is remaining in the hospital because of her injuries, but the Jones family is also visiting her in person, and they also call her once they get back home to Texas. And whenever she talks to the Jones family, she's apologizing every time. She had felt guilty for not being able to help Betty when she was being attacked, and she was also feeling guilty for being the one that survived in her own in the attack in her own house. Now, Betty's family, of course, continues to tell her that she was not to blame and she didn't do anything wrong. But in order to make her feel better, they do feel that they have to tell her that they forgive her. But nothing could bring Betty back. And so Catherine became very severely depressed. And on November 11th of 1990, just two months later, Catherine passed away. Now, at the time, the police said that she had died of natural causes. However, she was in the private home care facility by, the, by that time, and she was only there because of the injuries that she sustained in the attack. And the county medical examiner at the time, he said that he wasn't, he wasn't ruling out anything as a cause of death. He was acknowledging that her health deteriorated very quickly since the attack, and he was still going to consult with the state medical examiner about it. So I think it's safe to say for, for us nowadays it, that she definitely did die from from her injuries and from the severe depression afterwards, losing her friend, her best friend. But at the time, it wasn't labeled a double, double homicide. So they were looking for the guy, but they were looking for the perpetrator of a single murder and a sexual assault and beating. Now, Catherine's granddaughter, Julia Catherine Holt, she says, my granny was one of the strongest women I have ever known. She, w- I was so close to her. She was my closest grandparent. And I've known Betty all my life, even though she was so much younger, she was one of my granny's very, very best friends. 
So how are we going to find this asshole? Well, since Catherine had initially survived the attack, she was able to give police a description, a pretty good description, kind of, of the man who broke into her house that night. She tells them that he is young, maybe like in his 20s, with short, light brown or blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. And she was the person who gave the description to the sketch artist. And they did come up with the sketch, but even though it's 1990 and we all think that 1990 was just, you know, a few years ago. It was kind of old timey when it comes to how the sketch artists were working back then. I will post it, but it is a pretty rough sketch. Um, There's really not very many facial features, but they do have to, like we said, they have to go with something. Now, the Starkville Police Department, uh, Detective David Lindley, he will be the lead investigator right from the beginning. And in his interviews, he finds out that that night there was a party right next door. And remember, it's Memorial Day. And there's like a lot of teenagers and young people hanging around. Well, the guy throwing the party seemed to match the physical description that Catherine gave. So police interviewed his friends and one actually said that they overheard him saying that he didn't do it, but maybe his, quote, other self, unquote, did it. Now, this guy was also known to carry a knife and smoke the same cigarettes that they did find at Catherine's house where neither lady was a smoker. Now, these similarities were not enough, however, and even though there was enough evidence left at the crime scene, they didn't yet have the resources to do anything with the semen that was placed in the rape kit taken from Catherine. So there was no arrest that was made for this guy or any other possible suspects that they came up with. Now, the Starkville police chief was Bud Maxey at the time, and he realized that the house that Betty and Catherine were in, Catherine's house, was actually really near to I-82, And so he was thinking that maybe this perpetrator wasn't from Starkville in particular, but maybe from the surrounding area or passing through. So within the first two weeks after Betty was killed and Catherine was assaulted, the police department invited local police chiefs, detectives, and other representatives from the surrounding law enforcement agencies to come to Starksville for essentially a round table. They called it a brainstorming session. This wasn't really a meeting where they were expected to leave with any kind of suspect's name, but they were trying to get an angle on the best way to go about finding him. They compared notes on different types of violent crimes from other towns and their towns, and they tried to come up with a profile of the type of guy that could have done this. But by that Thanksgiving in 1990, the Starksville Police Department would end up asking the FBI to come in to help with the investigation. Now, there would be so many people in town that would still keep calling the police department asking if there's any updates on finding the man that did this. And all the police department could say is we don't have anything yet. So a few years have gone by and there's still nothing happening on the Kriegler Jones case. But in 1993, America's Most Wanted would cover the case. The Jones and Krigler families would be hoping against all hope that the national news coverage would produce some kind of movement and finally get the case solved. But unfortunately, this did not happen. And even though there there were leads coming in, nothing ever came to light. And then we end up jumping almost 15 years. Detective Lindley becomes the chief of police and Sergeant Bill Lott would end up taking over the cold case in 2004. Now, Detective Lott does take his time. He settles in with the case, with the evidence and, and all the records and the notes. And he spends about a year studying the file before he decides on his next steps. In 2005, he gets the lab to create a DNA profile from Catherine's rape kit that was taken back in the day. Now, the first thing he did was compare DNA of the sample of the neighbor that lived right next door to Catherine's at that at the time. But as it turns out, they did not match at all. In an interview with Sergeant Lott a few years ago, we are told, quote, 
the one-time prime suspect was almost certainly not the man who killed Betty Jones and Catherine Krigler. In 1990, there was a lot of pressure to arrest that man, and Lott believes that if he had been arrested, he would have been convicted and executed, unquote. This is the case where Lott says, I used to believe in the death penalty. Absolutely. Don't ask questions. If it's guilty, he's guilty. But now, but now we have to look so much more closely and be so much more sure that, you know, the person that we have on death row is actually the person that did it. So that neighbor was not the only person that they did have uh, on in their suspect list. So they also compared this DNA profile against these other suspects' DNA samples that were submitted, and they will all be ruled out over time. So now they seem to be even further away from the real truth than they thought that they were. But of course, Lot is also entering the profile into the national database of CODIS. But unfortunately, still nothing is coming back. Now, in the fall of 2017 is when Jason Jones and his brother Simon decide that they're going to create that Knock Knock podcast about their grandmother, Betty, and their and her friend, Catherine. And I listened, like I said, I did listen to a few episodes to get some information for my retelling of their lives, but it's a very in-depth look at both of the women and the investigation. So you should definitely go check it out if you're interested in a deep dive on this case. The podcast ends its season one in early of 18, but then throughout the year, it does a few, you know, question and answer uh, bonus episodes. And then of course, when the announcement of the perpetrator broke that they also added a few extra episodes after that. Now, in 2018, this is going to be early 2018, while Jason and his brother are producing this podcast for themselves and to try to bring awareness to their grandparent, their grandmother's case, Sergeant Lotta is still working the file and he's, he's working on the law enforcement end. And this is roughly when the Joseph D'Angelo case broke and everybody was all up in arms about this new investigative tool called Forensic or Genetic Genealogy. And Sergeant Lott is keeping his eyes on the case updates out of California because he's thinking that this could be something that could really help solve Betty and Catherine's case. But he wanted to be sure that this would actually hold up in court, as I'm sure a lot of police departments were thinking the same thing. Now, district attorney was sure that they would have no problem convicting Joseph D'Angelo, but at the same time, they were they were taking a risk. This is a new type of investigative tool that hasn't yet been sorted out by the courts. And as we've seen in the last few years, states have really had to zero in on this type of investigative tool because they have to figure out how much they will allow when it comes to how far back in the family tree is a strong enough lead for this for the for the courts to allow it to be, uh, you know, probative. At one point, is a discarded, you know, candy wrapper cigarette, but considered something that is actually abandoned and left behind, and then the and then that person has no should have no expectation of privacy. Because of course this is all about privacy. Um, there's just so many. There's so many other different things. I just can't even articulate them because there's so many, and I'm not a lawmaker. <laughs> but you get the point. You get the point, right? So all of the all of these law enforcement agencies are really watching the Joseph D'Angelo case, and I'm sure they're also watching that other case out of British Columbia, uh, the William Earl Talbot case. Uh, he was convicted and sentenced for the kill the, for the 1987 murders of Tanya Van. Is it? Uh, Kulenborg and her friend Jay Cook. Those are the first two cases that broke uh, the forensic genealogy leads. So in the end, uh, D'Angelo did plead guilty and was sent away for the rest of his life. And now Detective Lott is thinking, okay, I think I'm pretty comfortable with calling up Parabon for Betty and Catherine's case now. Parabon will take on the case 
And they do do the first, you know, that first, the phenotyping, which is, you know, trying to get a composite sketch based off of the DNA, all the little bits and bits and pieces of all the genetic codes. They So they send off the composite to the police department, and then they continue on with the family tree investigation. Once they're done, they call up Detective Lott and they say, this is the guy that we think we might have. Now, Lott is later going to say, quote, genetic genealogy is what actually solved this case, not CODIS, not your traditional database, unquote. October 8th of 2018, the Starkville Police Department announced the arrest of Michael Wayne Devon for the 1990 murder of Betty Jones and the sexual assault of Catherine Krigler. Okay, so who is Michael Wayne Devon? Who is this piece of shit? Once again, Rachel thinks she's going to come up with something and she gets no real biographical information on the guy. I'm going to have to give up. (laughs) I have discovered that we don't know anything about these assholes because they don't have a criminal sheet. They don't have prior arrest records. They don't have their DNA in CODIS. If they had prior criminal arrest records, their DNA would be in CODIS. And we wouldn't be sitting here talking about them on this podcast. He is our resident piece of shit, but we have very little information about him once again. So this is what we have. The gist of it is he is a divorced father. He's about 51 years old now. He's worked um, as a laborer for most of his life, and he has remained in Mississippi. At the time in 1990, uh, at the time of the attack in 1990, he was 23 years old. Now, This is going in and this is killing your grandmother and raping your great-grandmother. These are the age ranges that we're talking about here because he's an asshole. We don't have any, we don't know anything about his um, family makeup. We don't know anything about his his upbringing. Um, But he must have been keen on the DNA, um, you know, aspect of solving crimes and the fact that DNA, um, you know, research has evolved over over time. Because he does seem to keep a low profile after this. There is nothing else that comes up like we've seen in other episodes and other perpetrators where it's like, oh, my God, is there anything else that this guy did? Well, they're still still checking and comparing notes across multiple states' databases. But there's no mention of that for this guy. This guy seems to have been a one and done, at least one, one instance and done. And now up until 2018, he pretty much just used cash like his whole life and he just kept himself off the digital grid. Police couldn't even find his like his own credit history. So everything was cash for his whole life, pretty much. Now, the Prentice County Sheriff, um, Randy Toller, he says, quote, I've known his family all my life and I've known him since he was a child. He comes from a good family, but sometimes people make bad choices. You can't always tell, unquote. Unfortunately, that is the truth. Not everyone is born bad. Not everyone is made bad. Sometimes it's a mixture of both, right? So 2018, aside from his arrest in October, was not a good year for this guy. Earlier in June, Devon had been pulled over for some kind of noticeable problem with his car. Like you could look at it driving down the road and it was clearly in a state where it shouldn't be driven. So the police pulled him over. During the stop, they searched the car and they found meth. So they arrest him. And then he gets bonded out pretty soon after that. And then he goes about his merry way and he's supposed to meet for court in a few months. Well, before this court date comes around, he's arrested again for meth possession. 
And they say, well, you know what? We're just going to revoke your bond and we're going to keep you in jail until you until you appear for both of these charges. But in the meantime, Detective Lott is getting his name from Parabon and then just asking the county jail, hey, listen, is there anything you can get off this guy that I can send to the lab? And they say, absolutely. He's a smoker. We'll just pick up one of his cigarette butts. And that's what they do. They get the butt, they send it to the lab, and it turns out it's a complete match to the semen that was taken from Catherine at the time of the attack. So do we think he could have been found without genetic genealogy? I really don't think so, unless he was convicted of those drug possession charges in the in the summer of 18, before the saw went down in the background with Lot and Parabon, um, because the courts may have been able at that point to take his DNA if he was convicted and if he had been sentenced to any kind of prison. Um, I'm not sure how much meth he had on him for either of those instances, though. So we don't really know for sure. It's kind of up in the air. But his DNA was never in the CODIS system, so it wasn't like he had left his his DNA behind at any other crime scene. So if he was going to lead the nonviolent life like he seemed to have been leading since 1990, then then maybe he would have been able to get away with it and never gotten caught for Catherine and Betty's assault. Now, Devon's going to be smart about it, and he decides he's going to plead guilty to Betty's murder. But he does say only as long as they drop the sexual assault charge for Catherine. I don't understand why he was not charged with the, with the, with Catherine's murder, but that may be because of the laws back in 1990. One of those things where if you don't die at the scene or within, what, 12 hours of the attack, maybe it's not considered an actual homicide because, like we said, the police wanted to consider it natural causes. I'm not sure. But he does plead guilty to Betty's murder, and he will be sentenced to life without parole on November 17th of 2020. If the deal wasn't made and the case did go to trial, Devon would have been up for the death penalty. So that's how we know he did wise up in the end, right? Sergeant Lott has since been promoted to lieutenant. Woo, good for him. We're very proud of him. We're very thankful for everything that he and his department did to be able to solve this case. And it's just one of those cases that you think, like we said, I don't know if it would have ever been solved if we weren't able to do the family mapping of the DNA at the crime scene. So in our closing tribute, we're going to give this to Betty Jones's niece, Jennifer um, Taylor. She says, quote, anniversaries come and go and developments maybe start happening and then they fall through. But this was done correctly by Bill Lott of the Starkville Police Department. I can't speak enough about Bill. He kept his word and he never gave up. He saw it through and he got it done and the guy got arrested and today justice has been served. The night it happened, I vowed that I would never give up until something was done and this case was solved. My aunt was our family rock. She was a fun-loving, caring woman. and She came from an extremely close-knit family and I wasn't going to let anything go until we could have some sort of resolution. It's been a great day, a great, great day, unquote. And that is the case of Betty Jones and Katherine Craigler. So there we go. Another case solved by forensic genealogy. Um, Thank God we have it and we can start getting um, some of these cases solved. Catherine and Betty's uh, experience and story really just really tugged at my heart. Um, It it was so tragic and it was just so awful, but it was a beautiful friendship and and it was really endearing to to read about and, and hear about the friendship that they did have. Um, I am glad that we've got this piece of shit locked away at this point and we don't, we can forget, 
you know, we can forget he exists and move on. I'm glad the family was able to get some closure. Once again, you can always check me out on my website for sources, photos, and um, show notes, or rather the transcript. Um, my website is thetiesatfind.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Admittedly, Twitter is not very active. I'm not very savvy in the Twitter land. And um, with all the reposting and posting and or tweeting, sorry, <laughs> it just goes to show you how unknowledgeable I am. But definitely uh, rate, review, and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. And um, in this case, I will see you in two weeks. Bye.